Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. All right. Well, hey, it, like Dalton said, has been said multiple times, but I'm going to say it again. College students, you're back. Let's go. Ah. So my name, like Dalton said, is Stephen, and I am the college pastor here. And guys, I did not go into college ministry for June and July. I went to college ministry for August. This is the greatest time of the year. Like, seriously, it is awesome. Our community feels alive again. It is great to have all of you back. It's a super, super fun time of year. Uh, I have the privilege this morning of introducing our church to you. So this is a season of the year where there's lots of introductions. I'll start with myself. Like I said, I'm Stephen. I'm married to Natalie. She's amazing. We've been married for six years. We've got three kids, Isla, Jack, and Crew, all under the, or four and under, which is a ton of fun at our house right now. I actually slept a lot last night. I went to bed at 8.50 p.m., people. That is how ready I am for college students, going to bed at 8.50 That's it. No, Uh, I did actually. But anyways, uh, so three kids. I think if you want to know about my personality, one of our pastors, Jake Herring, summarizes my personality as a high-quality man with low-quality standards. For example, I one time, Natalie asked me to swing by Starbucks for her, and I said, I will swing by Starbucks for you, but just know I'm going to McDonald's first to get coffee there. That is, I prefer McDonald's coffee over Starbucks. I don't know. That's just... That's who I am. I'm a Cyclone fan, low quality expectations, all those things. Like maybe we'll have a 500 year, or like, you know, maybe we'll go past 500 and wins. Maybe not, I don't know. But that's a little bit about me. Well, I wanna introduce our church to you this morning, right? There's lots of introductions happening right now. Our kids are meeting their teachers. You might be meeting new coworkers, students, you're meeting each other. Well, Candeo Church wants to introduce ourselves to you. So my job, like I've said, is to tell you a little bit about who we are, what we value, and what we are trying to do as a church family. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Philippians 3. That is where we'll be at this morning. Uh, By way of introductions, one of our values as a church is to stand in awe of God's Word. That every single week when you come here, we are going to open Scripture and see what God has to say to us. That we're going to work through that passage verse by verse and let God's Word shape everything we do and believe here. So Philippians 3 is where we will be this morning. All right, here's how Philippians 3 begins, verse 1. It says, In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Passage begins with a very simple command rejoice in the Lord, have joy in Christ. And this command actually summarizes the vision that we have as a church. Several years ago, as our elder team, the group of men that lead our church, uh, met, they were asking, man, as we start this church nine years ago, what are we going to be about? When we're communicating our vision to the community around us, what are we going to tell them our church is about? 
Well, there's a lot of ideas that began to surface about how to articulate our vision, but one of the uh, factors that began to come to the surface was this reality that here in Cedar Falls and in the Cedar Valley, there are actually a lot of churches and a lot of good churches, and that for students, a lot of you are coming within a two-hour radius and have a church background. So our elder team, as they're discussing this, they felt like, man, if we just ask people, do you want to know and obey Jesus? Most people say, yeah, I do. Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I do. Do you want to go to church? Yeah, I do. But what really began to penetrate is not just do you believe in Jesus, do you, are you a Christian, but when we shifted the question to, is Jesus your greatest joy? Is Jesus the thing that you treasure above all other things? Are you completely satisfied in Christ? And our elder team felt like, man, when you shift the question to that, all of a sudden you begin to have a pause. Like, oh, is my greatest joy in Jesus? Is my deepest satisfaction in him? Are all the, the things that I'm wanting to find fulfillment in, are they found in Christ and Christ alone? So we adopted that as our vision statement that we as a church are endeavoring to help people find their greatest joy in Jesus, that we would actually embrace this very simple command, rejoice in the Lord, that all of our lives would be marked by this overflowing joy, this true happiness that is all centered around who Christ is. So that's who we are. That is why we exist as a church, to help you find your greatest joy in Jesus. Now, how do we do that? How do we help you find joy in Christ? Well, we use three very simple words around here that we believe if you embrace these words, you will actually find true joy. That if these words are marks of your life, that as people look at you, they say, yeah, that marks their life, that you will actually be a person who has deep joy and contentment in Christ. So those three words are know, love, follow. That disciples of Jesus know who Christ is, they love Christ, and they follow where he calls. That if those words are marks and if you embrace them, that you will actually have joy. See, we believe that there's a direct connection between your joy and knowing, loving, and following Christ. So everything we do here at Candeo revolves around those goals, that we would help you know who Christ is, love him, and follow where he calls. So what we're going to do over the course of the next three weeks is simply unpack each of those three words, know, love, follow, all in an attempt to help you find your greatest joy in Jesus. So this morning is knowing Christ. So Philippians 3 started with this simple command, rejoice in the Lord. Well, what's going to follow is Paul connecting the dots for us between how knowing Christ leads to our rejoicing in the Lord. And the way he's going to do that is through three movements in this passage. So he's going to start with the loss of knowing Christ. When you step into a relationship with him, when when you come to know Christ, what do you first lose? Second, he's going to show us the value of knowing Christ, that there is a surpassing worth in knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then lastly, he's going to show us the hope of knowing Christ. So we're going to work through each of those components and connect the dots for how your greatest joy is directly connected to your knowing Christ. So Philippians 3. How does this work? Well, if you notice at the end of verse one, what did he say? He said, reminding you to rejoice in the Lord is no trouble for me. It's a safeguard for you. Now, why does joy in Christ need to be safeguarded? 
Why does it need protected? Why, does it, why do we need this reminder? Well, at every moment, there's actually an imminent threat towards your joy in Christ. What is that threat? Well, look at verse 2. He says, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. There is an opposition, a threat to you finding greatest joy in Jesus. This is true today. This was true at the time that the apostle Paul was writing this in the first century. There was this opposition that was arising within the church that was threatening people's joy in Christ. And Paul's describing this opposition as dogs. Now that was an incredibly derogatory, offensive term. It'd be like calling someone a rat today. Dogs were strays, they were mungy, they were uh, just filthy animals. So it's an incredibly offensive term to call someone a dog. And Paul's saying, hey, this opposition towards your joy in Christ, they're dogs. And their purpose is clear. They work for evil. They are evil workers. That is their purpose. These rats, these dogs, their purpose is evil. What do they do? Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, I don't know what you're like thinking right now when you hear like dogs, evil workers, mutilators of flesh. Like what on earth is, is this opposition doing? Right? What on earth could, is so wicked, so evil that Paul is using this strong of language against these guys? Well, the answer to that is actually in verse 3. Paul says something really interesting that you might not expect. What does he say? Well, look at verse 3. For we are the circumcision. Why does he say that? Right? That's kind of a, like, man, you guys like the Hawkeyes, but we like Cedar Falls Tigers. You'd be like, what? That, why are you bringing up Cedar Falls Tigers, right? You should say you and I Panthers, right? Let's go cats. Why is he bringing this up, right? Mutilators of flesh. We're the circumcision. That's what we're standing on. Like, kind of a weird thing to stand on, Paul. Okay, sir, what? why is he saying this? Well, this party, this opposition that had arisen in the church, they were actually calling themselves the circumcision party. And it's actually the same group of guys that go in Acts 15, and they are the ones that initiate the first church council. So here's what these guys claimed in Acts 15.1. It says, some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. That's the evil work. That is what is getting these guys called dogs. So mutilating the flesh, Paul's saying that's actually circumcision. Is that what you would have expected? When you hear dogs, evil workers, mutilated the flesh, like I don't know where your mind goes. I'm like, man, what on earth could these guys be doing? They were telling people to get circumcised, to follow the law of Moses. That was the great evil they were recommending to people. And Paul is saying, I'm gonna remind you to rejoice in the Lord as a safeguard against people who would tell you to be circumcised and follow the Bible. What? Like, that's the great evil Paul is thinking of here? That is such a threat, so dangerous to our joy in Jesus? Why? Why is that so dangerous to our joy in Christ? Because Paul knows that if you add anything to the work of Christ to your salvation it will rob you of all joy. Even if you add one requirement, circumcision, it will rob you of all joy. 
you'll be unable to rejoice in the Lord. Why? Well, he answers that as he goes on in verse 3. He said, we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by spirit, by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. So he says, we boast in Christ Jesus, the true people of God, the ones who truly worship by the Spirit of God, they boast in Christ and Christ alone. What does that mean? It, it means that you look exclusively at Jesus for your salvation. It means you completely lean on him to save you, as opposed to putting confidence in the things of the flesh, confidence in the things that you do for God. Now, what is the flesh that he's talking about? Right? When I think most of us hear the word flesh, at least when we're thinking about spiritually, we think about overt sins, right? These sinful desires that are within me, not walking by the spirit, but the flesh. It's like, okay, I just think of like these really deep, like the worst sins you commit, could commit. And that's true. That is what the flesh is. But it's kind of interesting, right? That Paul says, we don't put confidence in the flesh. What is he claiming? He's claiming that the flesh is not just the worst things that you could do in this life. It's also the best things you could do in this life to try to gain acceptability before God. Here's how Alec Modier describes this. We learn how incredibly marvelous is our Savior only when we dismiss this popular conception from our minds and accept that it is not only man at his worst, but also man at his best, who is flesh, and therefore not yet acceptable to God. Being in the flesh isn't just doing bad things. It is also doing the right things to try to earn acceptability before God on your own. And Paul is saying the only way you'll have joy in Jesus is if you only boast in him for your salvation. Now, what are the potential places that we might look for confidence in the flesh? Well, Paul gives us his list. He kind of walks us through his personal story. Look at verse four. He says, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse five, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. What is he saying? I was as good as you could get. If you want a spiritual resume, I have it. Ceremonial confidence, circumcised. I've been a part of the people of God since infancy. National confidence, Israel, God's chosen people. Ancestral confidence of the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe that the first king of Israel came from and the only tribe to remain loyal to David. Familial confidence, Hebrew born of Hebrews. Look at my parents. Look at my grand, look who I came from. Religious confidence, a Pharisee. This was the strictest sect of the Jude Jewish religion. Ministry confidence. I was so zealous for the ministry God gave me. I was persecuting the church. Moral confidence, blameless. He wasn't aware of any area of his life that was not in line with God's word. He was all of that, the best you could think of. No one could be more confident in their religious standing before God than he could. But what does he conclude? 
Look at verse 7. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. All of that, a loss. A total loss. One question that I ask people a lot is, hey, how do you think God will determine who goes to heaven and who goes to hell? Like, what will he base that decision off of? And the most common answer that I get to that question when I ask people is something along the lines of like, well, I think there's gonna be this scale where like there's, God will put good things on this side, bad things on that side, and as long as it like balances out where the good is heavier than the, or let's see, that way. As long as the good is heavier than the bad, you're good, you go to heaven. That is the most common answer I get to that question. And it's not just an answer that I hear outside of this church. It's actually the most common answer I've heard in this room when I ask it to people after services. Here's what Paul concluded. Everything that I would have put on that side, weightless, a loss. It did nothing to move me one inch closer to right standing with God. Paul listed every good thing he had done and every spiritual privilege he had had and found that it was a loss. All of his attempts to make himself right with God, all of his attempts to live the right way, worthless. For many of you, the greatest barrier to Jesus in your life is not the overt sins present, but it's your reluctance to admit that all your good is a loss. It's refusing to admit that you are still flesh. And we create these same lists. I was baptized as an infant. I've been a part of the people of God since birth. I was confirmed in eighth grade. What do you mean I'm not a Christian? Look at my parents. Look at the pillars of faith that they've been in my life. How could someone from my family not be right with God. Look at the mission trips I went on in high school. Look at how I've raised my kids. I've got them to church every week. You tell me what in my life is so bad that God would send me to hell for an eternity for. We make the exact same spiritual resumes as Paul does. But the barrier for us is whether or not, like Paul, we are willing to admit everything that we would list over here is a loss compared to knowing Christ. Paul was the best of the best, but what he found is he was no better than the worst of the worst. One of the, I've been trying to think of what word to describe this conversation, impactful, poignant moments of my life. It was this moment that I will literally never forget. I was sitting with my roommate in college. The reason he became my roommate is because we had an open room in our apartment and he was being kicked out of his house and was on probation for sexually molesting his younger sisters. And in one of those first initial days together, I sat in the living room one night with him and heard his story. And the whole time he was telling me this story, I was thinking, I, I legitimately think you might be the worst person I have now had a personal relationship with. As far as like the wickedness that he had committed, 
And it was like this assessment I was doing as he was telling me his story. Like, do I really believe that I am no more deserving of God's grace than this guy? And when he concluded his story, I looked at him. And I said, I am no more deserving of God's grace than you. You want to know why you don't find joy in Jesus? Because you actually don't know if that's true. When you think about the worst people in this world, there is a part of you that still believes that you deserve deserve God's love more than they do. When you think about that, you're like, how? How could I deserve God's grace the same as them? That is your barrier. You can't admit that you are no more deserving of God's grace than anyone else in this world. And until you see all of your religious portfolio as a loss, you will not find joy in Jesus. But here's the great reality. When you finally admit loss to everything that you looked at, you will actually finally see the value in Christ in a way you never have before. Look at verse 8. Paul says, more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything is a loss in view of the value of knowing Christ. You see, when we compare our list of good works horizontally to other people, we might come out of that assessment thinking that we're pretty good, that, we, that they carry some value. But as soon as we assess the value of our good works, not horizontally, but vertically, compared to the perfection of Christ, we realize they are a loss. We realize there's an infinite gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness, and that our good works do nothing to bridge that gap. But here then is the value of knowing Christ. The more aware you become of that gap, of just how great God is and just how broken we are, the more aware of the value you will see in Christ. The more you will come to appreciate the grace that we've received in him. You'll see the surpassing value of knowing Christ in a way you never have before. Now, what is the value of knowing Christ? Well, Paul's going to unpack the value in three short phrases. Look at how he goes on in verse 8. So he's because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. The first aspect of valuing the knowing Christ is that you see everything else that this world has to offer and you say they are worthless compared to the treasure of Christ. They're dung. I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them dung so that I may gain Christ. I see Jesus as the true treasure, the true satisfaction, the true joy of my life. Not only that, here's the second piece. It starts in verse 9. And be found in him. Knowing Christ means, secondly, that we have union with Christ. You see, so many of us think about our relationship with God in this kind of impersonal way, that I'm a citizen and he's maybe a judge and I need his forgiveness, but that's the extent of our relationship. But what we see here is that being found in him, that actually when you put your faith in Christ, you are brought into a relationship with Christ, that there is union, that there is a relationship that is intimate and deep and built on love, that this union can never be severed. 
Here's the third aspect of knowing Christ. So he says, and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Righteousness means right standing with God, that you are acceptable in his sight. Now, what is his standard of acceptance? It's perfection. James 2.10 says that even if you keep the entire law, yet stumble at one point, you are guilty of breaking it all. God's standard to be accepted in his presence is complete perfection. Now, how is that possible? How is it possible that that could be God's standard? Well, last month, a group of us went to visit the students who had gone overseas, and uh, I got to sit down with Logan Swaim, one of our uh, staff members who went overseas. I got to sit down with Clay Guider, and the three of us met with three Muslim students in this country. And as we were talking about it and unpacking God's standard being perfection, they said, no, 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 that can't be. Like, God knows that nobody's perfect. He must grade on a scale. And all three of them uh, had motorcycles and mopeds. That's a very popular form of transportation in this country. And so I said, okay, have any of you guys first and foremost been in a motorcycle accident? All three of them had. I'm like, this is, this is great. This is why we don't let our students ride on mopeds, because all of you guys get in accidents. So that was the first thing that came out. But then I said, okay. So imagine you're driving, you have an accident, and it is totally your fault. Like, 100%, like, it is clear, it is your fault. You ran the stop sign. Imagine that the cop comes up to you and says, hey, you committed a traffic violation, I need to write you a ticket. Now imagine you say, okay, okay, okay. I get that I messed up now, but listen, this is the very first stop sign I've ever like, ran. I've had a perfect driving record up to this point. And not only that, I promise that I will have a perfect driving record beyond this point. Like, I know I messed up today, but perfect record in the past, perfect record in the future, will you let me off the hook? What will the cop say? He's like, listen, past and future good records don't change the fact that you're guilty today and that there is a fine that you need to pay. Here's the reality. Past record of good works, future record of good works doesn't erase the guilt of your sin. Even if it's 99 times you did the right thing, but that once you did wrong. The 99 doesn't erase the guilt of that one. God's standard is perfection. To which all of us are then like, okay, well then, what, how can any of us be acceptable before God? Well, God looked at this problem. And look what he says he did if you look back at Philippians 2. He sent Jesus. And here's what it says in verse 6. Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. God looked at our predicament, the predicament that all of us stand guilty before him, and he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin, to be our substitute. 1 Corinthians 5.21 says that Christ took our sin and said we received his righteousness, that all of the guilt of our sin was placed on him on the cross so that we could receive the righteousness from God. A righteousness that comes through faith. God transferred your guilt to his son 
so that instead you could have his record of perfection. So that now at the moment you believe in Christ, all God sees is his son's righteousness in your place. Jesus came to the earth, the perfect sacrifice for our sins, so that we could know him and have a righteousness that comes through faith and that does not come from the law. Knowing Christ then means treasuring Christ above all else, recognizing the relationship that we now have with him that is only made possible through his death and resurrection. Now, what happens when you know Christ? Verse 10 and 11 describe the unshakable hope that we have. It's both a hope for this life and a hope for the life to come. In response to knowing Christ, here's what Paul says. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. When we put our faith in Christ, we enter into a relationship with him and now God's goal in your life is that you would actually be conformed to his son, that you would know him and that your life would begin to reflect the one that you are in union with, that you'd be conformed and not only conformed in obedience, but also conformed to his death. That actually one of the tools that God is gonna use in your life to make you look like his son is suffering. But here's the hope that we have in the midst of that. Notice something you would expect. If you're being conformed like Christ in his death, wouldn't you expect death than resurrection just like Christ? But notice that here Paul flips that. Look back at verse 10. Knowing the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. For Christ, death came before resurrection, but for the believer in Christ, resurrection comes before death. Meaning the same power that rose Christ Jesus from the dead is now in you. So that you don't have to face suffering alone. Christ Jesus faced suffering alone on the cross so that you would never have to be alone. That's one way that we grow in knowing Christ. There's two other ways that we grow in knowing Christ. Around Candeo, we talk about hearing his voice and having his ear. That God has given us his word to actually know and grow in our knowledge of Christ. That this great Savior who has rescued us from sin has actually written us his word so that we can know him. And the more that we know him, the more that we'll delight in him and worship him and appreciate the grace we've received. But not just hearing his voice, but also having his ear, that we would actually have communion with God. You see, like I said, union with Christ can never be lost, but communion with Christ can fluctuate. That through prayer, we actually have the opportunity to engage relationally with Christ and grow in our knowledge of him. But not only are we to grow in our knowledge of him, and not only do we have a hope for this life by knowing Christ, but we also have a hope for the life to come. Look at verse 11. It says, assuming that somehow I will reach the resurrection from the dead. Knowing Christ secures for us our salvation. Now, the word somehow sounds uncertain, right? It's like, okay, possibly, somehow, that sounds uncertain. There is uncertainty present in this verse, but the uncertainty isn't whether or not we will be raised in the last day, glorified with Christ. That's not what's uncertain. What's uncertain is actually the path that God will take us there in this life to that. I don't know what suffering you will face. I don't know how long on this earth you have. That part is uncertain, but what is not uncertain is that you will 
reach the resurrection from among the dead. This is the hope of knowing Christ. Now, one of my favorite stories in the Bible comes from Zechariah 3. And this is where we're actually going to land. You can turn there if you want, but Zechariah 3, we get this amazing story. It's this vision that the prophet Zechariah is caught up into where he sees the high priest Joshua in the presence of God. In Zechariah 3, 1, this is how it begins. It says, Then he showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan standing on, at his right side to accuse him. So here's the scene. You're in the throne room of God. You've got the high priest of Israel standing in there before the presence of the angel of the Lord. And on, to, off to the side is Satan there to accuse him. Now, who is Joshua? What did it mean to be the high priest? Well, this is the religious leader of the entire nation of Israel. He had to be from the right family line. He had to follow the law from, of Moses. He is the religious elite of the day. And he is thrust into the presence of God and there's Satan. Verse two, it says, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now here's the shocking thing. Satan is accusing him. And Satan is right. Look at verse three. Now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. There Joshua is, dressed in filthy clothes. Now this is shocking because leading up to this moment in Leviticus 16, you see all of the ceremonial washings that Joshua would have had to go through to be prepared to be in the presence of God. It's like a two-week washing period. I don't know if you've ever taken a two-week bath. You'd be pruny as all get out. Like, he is clean. Like, this dude is clean. And they've done everything they could to prepare him to be acceptable before God. They had sacrificed animals, bathed him. He had put on new clothes and he walks in. And what is true? He is covered head to toe in filth. What is this showing us? That the one person that we think might be acceptable in the presence of God the religious elite, the person who had gone through all the ceremonial rituals, maybe he would be accepted before God. Compared to God's holiness, he is still covered head to toe in the filth of his sin. But what happens? Look at verse four. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to him, see, I've removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with festive robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So a clean turban was placed on his head, and they clothed him in garments while the angel of the Lord was standing nearby. In the presence of God, Joshua was covered head to toe in filth. And yet God didn't consume him with his wrath in that moment, instead extended grace to him removed his filth and gave him the clean garments of righteousness. Compared to the holiness of God, you and I are covered head to toe in the filth of our sin and guilt. And yet there's an invitation to receive a righteousness that only comes through faith in Christ, to allow God to cleanse you of that filth, of your sin, and to experience the grace that is in Jesus Christ.
to have the garments of your old self taken off and replaced by the garments of righteousness that only Christ can give. You see, there is no one who is so bad they can't be cleansed by Jesus. And there is no one so good that they don't need to be cleansed by Jesus. For I've considered everything a loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let's pray. God, we can't disconnect the joy that we have in Christ from our awareness of your holiness, from our awareness of the gap that stood between your holiness and our sinfulness. And yet, it's as, be, as we become more aware of that reality that we come to treasure, treasure Jesus that we come to agree with Paul that there is a surpassing value in knowing Christ. That all these things that I once looked to to make me right before God, they're weightless. But what remains is Christ. His perfect sacrifice, his perfect life, his amazing resurrection that offered me a righteousness that I could never attain on my own. God, I pray that we would know Christ in this way. That we would know Christ not through our effort, but we would know Christ through our faith. And God, that as we know Christ, that it would begin to change our lives, that we'd actually be people who begin to resemble the one who came to save us. The one who we are united with in relationship. The one who is with us in our suffering. The one who has secured an eternal salvation for us. God, that we would be people who know you through your word, who know you through prayer. Not in an effort to earn your love, but in a response to the love we've received from you. God, I pray that we would be a church marked by joy. And the joy of knowing Christ, who rescued us from sin's domain and brought us into the kingdom of light. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.